Maine is known for its rocky coastline, beautiful forests, and brutal winters. It's the home of Stephen King, Alan's Coffee Brandy, and the Best Lobster. To the people who come from away, it's a vacation. But to those of us who live here, it's the way life should be. Welcome to Vacationland. My name is AJ, and I will be your guide through the history and mysteries of Maine. I have two dogs and a cat in the room with me, so there may be some background noise. On October 28th of 2020, in a debate against Democratic challenger and Maine Speaker of the House Sarah Gideon, Susan Collins openly stated, I do not believe systemic racism is a problem in the state of Maine. She said this in response to the question asked by debate moderator Steve Batari, is the phrase Black Lives Matter controversial and is there a systemic racism problem here in Maine? It's true, roughly 94% of Mainers are white. That number has actually gone down in recent years due to an influx of immigrants, but we are still one of the whitest states in the nation. The recently re-elected Senator Collins went on to say, I think we are very fortunate in the state of Maine because we have terrific members of law enforcement. It's clear that in some parts of our country there is systemic racism or problems in police departments. I am here to tell you that Susan Collins is very, very wrong. Black people in Maine are incarcerated at six times the rate of white people. They are 20 times more likely to contract the coronavirus, and Maine has one of the highest rates of black poverty in the country. In 2012, Charlie Webster, the Maine Republican Party chairman, implied voter fraud by making allegations that too many black people voted. Quote, Dozens and dozens of black people came in and voted on election day. Everybody has a right to vote but nobody in these towns knows anyone who's black. He was later forced to issue an apology. Hell, I've seen people driving around with the Confederate flag on their trucks. The Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial, Indigenous, and Maine Tribal Populations, which was established just this year, released its first report in early September. It stated that race has never been a focus of legislation, despite data that shows Maine is not unaffected by institutional racism particularly that which affects the state's indigenous and racial minorities. There are 26 bills that address wage gaps, incarceration rates, and health care disparities, among other issues, which aim to push Maine into a better future currently awaiting legal action. Representative Rachel Talbot Ross of Portland, chairperson of the previously mentioned commission, wrote in a statement, For far too long we have allowed our laws to uphold a system that produces disproportionate outcomes for racial, indigenous, and Maine tribal populations. Legislation alone will not end these disparities, but it plays a critical role. And prior to this report back in June of this year, there was a public call from Maine legislators to Governor Mills to declare racism a public health emergency. Representative Craig Hickman of Winthrop remarked, We drive the buses, we mop the hospital floors, we empty the bedpans, we take out the public's trash, we build houses and fix the roads. We grow and prepare and process and deliver our community's food. We are essential, but we are not expendable. It is not that Maine is without systemic racism, but rather that the majority of the white populace is not forced to look it in the eye every day. We don't see our own racism in the national news. 
We're tucked up in the corner with blinders on. Maine is not exempt from the horrors we see elsewhere. We just hide it better. Maine Public Radio did an interview with artist and educator Daniel Minter back in February 2019. Minter noted that there have always been people of color in Maine, and that the emphasis on the white population in the state has contributed to an air of exclusion. Quote, It's just that the state has not needed to welcome us. It has not needed to welcome people of color. Like I say, in the U.S., if you don't make it welcoming, then you end up actually pushing us away. End quote. A big issue in Maine is the aging population. We struggle to keep young people in the state. I fully believe that encouraging diversity will help Maine grow. We can only be better if we invite it. But there are many gatekeepers in Maine, and they are mostly old and white. So historically, Maine has been forcing people of color to conform to a specific set of white standards without fully acknowledging that we're doing it. That history is a long and sordid tale, but for the sake of brevity, we'll begin with Malaga Island. It all started with Benjamin Darling, a man from the West Indies who would arrive on a boat that collided with the coast of Maine in the 1790s. Benjamin would save his captain, a man that also owned him, and eventually be granted his name and his freedom. Benjamin Darling would go on to buy Horse Island, now known as Harbor Island, for 15 pounds and settle there with his wife, Sarah Proverbs. Though she is believed to be a white woman, there are few records about Sarah that exist. In the 1800s, islands off the coast of Maine were difficult to get to, and there was very little area, if any, to farm. They weren't popular places to live, so it wasn't uncommon to have poor family groups set up on the islands and eke out what they could from the sea. Benjamin Darling's descendants would eventually settle on several islands in Casco Bay. The island that would be named Malaga had previously been inhabited by the indigenous people of the area, which may be how the island got its name. Malaga is reportedly the Abenaki word for cedar. The island could have also been named for Malaga, Spain, which is where the cargo of the ship Benjamin Darling traveled on had come from. It's of little consequence, though. The name stuck. The island sits off the coast of Phippsburg in the New Meadows area, the 42-acre island is bracketed by Bear Island to the west and Sabasco to the east. On the north end, there is a white shell beach, and red spruce trees cover most of the island. The Griffins are perhaps the first residents of Malaga Island. Henry Griffin and Fatima Darling Griffin built their home on the east side of the island in the early 1860s. Soon, a small interracial fishing village was established. It wasn't really different from the mainland. Life was rough, they were poor, but the community cared for each other. The residents relied heavily on what they could drag from the sea. They fished using nets and turned to lobster when the fishing was poor. They dug for clams and sold herring to support their families. They picked wild berries and grew small plots of potatoes, beans, and corn. Some of them worked on the mainland at the emerging resorts and on local farms. But winters were hard for those on the island, and in 1892, they began receiving help from the Phippsburg Pauper Relief Fund. With the rise of nativism and eugenics, 
the island's developing dependence on town aid and the decline of the boat-building industry leading to the rise of tourism in Maine, Malaga Island swiftly became a point of contention in the nearby mainland communities. The tar paper homes on the island were suddenly eyesores to both mainland residents and the new summer visitors. Pittsburgh, wanting to rid itself of Malaga and its dependent residents, started arguing that the island actually belonged to nearby Harpswell. Soon, a feud sparked between the two towns. It would last for five years. Legislators would eventually decide in 1903 that Malaga and some of the nearby islands were part of Sagadahawk County and therefore Phippsburg's problem. Not long after, desperate to rid itself of the island, stories of the degenerates that lived on Malaga started to circulate. The Casco Bay Breeze wrote in August of 1905, But enough of the poor colored race. We doubt not many of them have white hearts. But such a spot of natural beauty as could here be made for a few summer homes, and could this gem of an isle be depopulated and rebuilt, what a change and what an imposing entrance to our beautiful New Meadows River. Mainlanders increasingly fixated on the island and the belief that it sullied the state's beauty and charm. Rumors circulated that the island's residents, an oddity of mixed-race people living together in a time of racial separation, were savages. The children had horns and burrowed in tunnels, and the adults bore the signs of syphilis. They ate their food uncooked and were morally and mentally defective. These rumors were spread through main newspapers like the Bath Enterprise, Casco Bay Breeze, and Harper's Magazine. Soon anyone who could afford a boat ride were circling the island trying to get a glimpse of the people of Malaga. The stories about the island drew missionaries to the area. In 1906, a school was established by George and Lucy Lane and their daughter Cora. The school began in Mr. McKenney's house. The Lanes raised enough money through their Malaga Island Settlement Association, which called on businesses, church groups, and individuals in the area to help educate Malaga's youth. In 1909, they finally raised enough money to build a schoolhouse. The missionaries and their supporters hoped that with education, the children of Malaga would assimilate to a developing and uncertain world. The education was believed to be so good that at least one student from the mainland would pay tuition to attend school on the island. Despite the land's best efforts, the people of Malaga would soon be forced to leave their home. And despite legislators deciding that Malaga was Phippsburg problem in 1903, the decision was repealed in 1905. The islanders were officially wards of the state. Governor Frederick Plasted would visit Malaga with a group of state officials on July 11, 1911. He praised the school and its students, but did not feel there was much hope for the adults. He would be quoted in the Brunswick Times later, the plan would be to burn down the shacks with all their filth. Certainly the conditions are not creditable to our state, and we ought not to have such things near our front door. And I do not think that a like condition can be found in Maine, although there are some pretty bad localities elsewhere. The subject of who exactly owned Malaga had come into question. People had settled and lived on the island for some 50 years, but they had never paid taxes on the property. There was perhaps some record that a man by the name of Eli Perry had purchased the island, but neither he nor his heirs had paid taxes on the island either. 
The Perry's claim to the land has been contested in recent years thanks to research efforts. But in 1911, the state would side with the Perry's, and eviction orders were promptly issued. The people of Malaga needed to vacate the island by July 1, 1912. Because the residents were wards of the state, the people of Malaga underwent assessments of their homes, finances, and physical and mental health. The testing included naming things like the sitting president and a telephone, things that would have been commonplace to people with money and education. Eight people would be declared feeble-minded. On December 9th of 1911, a local doctor would sign papers and commit seven members of the Marx family, Jacob, Abby, their son James, three daughters, Lizzie, Lottie, and Etta, and grandson William, plus an unnamed elderly woman, to the main school for the feeble-minded. Jacob and his son were both ill. They would die in the following year. It's likely the daughters were educated girls and therefore competent, but a physician's signature and a probate judge ensured their incarceration. By 1919, several attempts had been made to free Lottie but the superintendent continued to declare her unfit, likely because of her race. The state would purchase the island from the Perrys and pay the remaining families a small sum to ensure that they vacated Malaga by July. Some of the families chose to move their homes to the mainland and some to other islands in the area. The new schoolhouse was moved to Louds Island in Muscongas Bay. Any remaining structures were burned to the ground. Finally, Malaga's dead were exhumed. Seventeen bodies were removed from the island and placed in five caskets to then be buried at the main school for the feeble-minded. An article published in January of 1913 announced the island was no longer a reproach to good name of state. Without a place to settle following their eviction, many people of Malaga ended up floating their homes up and down the river. There was a mother who had fallen ill and passed in the time it took for her husband to return with the doctor. She was found in her floating home with her children clinging to her body. Lottie and her mother were the only members of the Marx family to survive the school and make it to the outside. Lottie in particular was not released until 1925, after the state legislature had passed the law making forced sterilization of the feeble-minded legal. Lottie Marx, one of the last residents of the island, would finally die in 1997 in a nursing home in Augusta at the age of 103. Malaga Island was sold to a friend of Governor Playstead. The plan was to build a resort, which never happened for one reason or another. Evicted because of bigotry and greed, this peaceful fishing community did their best to adapt to their new lives, but it was difficult. The terms Malagaite and Malago had become slurs. Despite their love for their former home, they could no longer claim it. To claim it was to be shunned. Despite all the scheming to clear the island, no one has lived there since, though some fishermen store their gear there. In 2001, the Maine Coast Heritage Trust purchased the island. They would allow archaeologists from the University of Southern Maine to excavate the area and begin piecing together the lives of Malaga's residents. And in September of 2010, Malaga and its people were once again a topic of interest. Governor John Baldacci issued an apology to the island's descendants.
This is such an important part of Maine's history, and I never even learned about it in school. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more, you can check out the sources listed at pinetreepodcast.com and click on Vacation Land at the top of the page. Music is by Lurker, and I have to issue an apology here because I've been listing the wrong link for his page. You can check out more of his work at lurker.bandcamp.com. And follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at vacationlandpod.